0: run out of excuses and we are running out of time
1: we are looking at mass starvation within 10 years the reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe
2: change is coming whether you like it or not Next.
3: I'm Selena Godden and I'm Jessica Townsend for the Extinction Rebellion podcast. This episode is celebrating the XR Writers Rebel event, which took place on the 11th of October 2019 in Trafalgar Square. That evening took the form of a Writers Marathon with 40 of the UK's top authors reading from their own and other people's work. It was hosted by Simon McBurney and A.L. Kennedy. And along with clips from the readings taken during the event, I'm going to be reminiscing with A.L. Kennedy about the night. And we're also going to feature an interview with Margaret Atwood, which was recorded on the very morning that she won the Booker Prize. Oh, and you can keep up with Writers Rebel on social media by searching for XR Writers Rebel. Here's the rest of Selena Godden and the rest of the event.
4: Calling all my bookish comrades, all the inky-fingered introverts, all the bespectacled pen pushers, calling all the writers, are you here? Calling the readers, the book lovers, calling all the wordsmiths, calling the poets, the spoken word artists, the ranters and raconteurs, calling the literati, calling all the publishers, the libraries, the bookshops, the teachers, the professors working tirelessly to inspire young people to read and to write and to believe, to try to believe in a future where reading and writing and studying is worth it, like there is a tomorrow. Calling all book groups and reading support groups. The people fighting to get more books into prisons and into immigration centres. Calling all creators of zines and all the pamphleteers. Calling all the indies and the DIY punk poets. Calling all of you, all of you, all of you, calling all of you that love books. Do you love books? Calling all of you that love to read and spend hours tweeting and posting beautiful images of books. Hashtag bookstagram. This is the writer's rebellion and this is the first time we have come together. Are you here for this? Time is now. Today is the day. We come together to write a better future. The Writers' Rebellion is today. I am here for this, we are here for this. Remember, you are powerful. You have the power. Remember that a book can inform and inspire and spark vital conversation and debate. Remember, your writing can change the path of history, sway public opinion and votes. Remember that. All I can say is I hope generations in the future will write about this time, the early 21st century with some joy. I hope future writers will remember us and write that we did something good, that we made a difference, that we did not roll over and binge watch another episode of dystopian fiction on Netflix in a numb state of apathy. I want the next new, young generation of writers to write with freedom. I want them to write with the freedom that there is a tomorrow. The way I wrote when I was 14, because I thought there was a future when I was 14, but the 14-year-olds now don't have that same way of looking at the future, now do they? Do they? No. And I'm here for this, and we are here for this. The Writers' Rebellion. Because I know it is poetry and art that connects us all. That poetry can be a song and a prayer. That poetry sets an intention. That poetry is magic. Poetry is our shared language and common ground. A book can save a life. I have felt it and I have seen it. I've seen words fill a soul with empowerment and courage. And I'm calling on you all today, all of you that write, all of you that create worlds with your words, with your truth and your power, you can help to write a better today and a better tomorrow. This is the First Writers' Rebellion, are you here for this? I am here for this, because if tomorrow is that bleak dystopia from our fiction heroes, from fiction books by Orwell and Huxley and Atwood. Then, as writers, we have no choice but to write a better ending, to change the narration, to protest for this home we share, to protect the elderly and sick, the poor and the vulnerable, to stand up for the millions of people already affected by corporate greed and war, migration, famine, drought, and flood. We are here for this to protect our shared history and our ancestors' lands and the majesty of the cathedrals we have above us in the skies and beneath our feet in the earth and the bones of our dead and the architecture in the ocean and our forests. We must nurture all we have inherited and all that we will pass on and keep this world safe for now and for the generations to come. Are you here for this? I am here for this. I write this today. Remembering, remembering that literacy is a gift, not given freely to all. I want us to remember that women make up two thirds of the world's illiteracy and that all, not all women are permitted books and writing or a vote. And I want us to remember the silence women in countries that are the first to be affected by extreme weather, greedy, corrupt men, and the escalating climate emergency. Are you here for that? I am here because I don't want this world to continue to be a terrible nightmare. A bloody, awful adaption of 1984 and Brave New World and Handmaid's Tale rolled into one, but with a really badly written script and a low rank cast with bad hair and shit makeup. I mean, who would cast Boris Johnson the leading role of the movie of 2019? Not me. Exactly. Are you here for this? The Writers' Rebellion. We are the writers rebellion and this is the first time we have come together and I am here for this and we are here for this and we unite to write a better ending. This letter comes with hope and with courage. We must imagine a better world and fight for a better world, a world that we all deserve in real life and not just in fiction and not just in the dreams of this idealistic poet standing here before you now. I love clean air. I love clean water. I love justice. I love freedom, and I share this with love, grief, and fury. (laughs) Sorry. Thank you very much.
3: This is Jessica Townsend, and I am sitting in the cafe in London uh, with Al Kennedy. A week. Exactly, since we did the Writers' Rebel event. Let's start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. When I turned up at midday, we didn't have a stage, and we didn't didn't have have a sound system. system. Did you know about
5: that, or did you only know when it had been sorted out? I kind of assumed that that would be the case. Um, Yeah, I mean, this was definitely filed in the file of... We aren't going to know what this was, even when we've done it, but it's all OK. And, you know, all of the writers beforehand were going, do we know what this is? Nah, we do, well, we do know what this is, but also we don't know what this is, so it's fine, it's just going to be what it is. And everybody who turned up was okay with it's going to be what it is. Yeah. And and, and what it was
3: was a sort of tombola tent.
5: (laughs) It was (laughs) a gazebo. Taken over. A gazebo. gazebo (laughs) Tombola gazebo. (laughs) Made beautiful by endless improvisation.
3: But there were also sirens going on, people being arrested behind us. Grinders.
5: Shouts, cheers. uh, A man climbing onto a van covered in crash barriers and saluting (laughs) as if he was in a a kneeling comedy. It was magnificent going huzzah and it we went huzzah! and he drove off on top of the van. Then you had the torrential downpour, you had the improvised light catching in the torrential downpour off the gazebo, which looked as beautiful as the only thing that made it more beautiful was Simon Sharma still reading people still listening yes. and and the Red Brigade yes. who just appeared out of a, a fine mist <laughs> to make shapes underneath the rain that basically made it look as if they had arranged the rain at that point <laughs> to make everything more beautiful. <laughs> uh, we- and Simon Sharma was just
3: transported,
5: yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, well how would you not be? You're looking down at the Red Brigade, the rain is coming down, you're breathing, everybody's still there, the atmosphere is, is Extraordinary but human. There were moments when I just sat there and felt
3: prickles go up my back because it was so moving. There felt to be such a richness and diversity amongst those writers speaking.
5: All of the writers that I've spoken to, which is everybody because I spoke to everybody before they went, just before they went out at one and just after, Uh, and everybody in the half foot. Simon McBurney was chair, you know, everybody said pretty much the same thing, which is that this is what writing is supposed to be about and for, and this is the most comfortable we've all ever felt at a literary event because it wasn't about ego, it was about saying something about humanity and trying to sustain people with words while they're trying to do a good thing, which is kind of what we're supposed to do all the time.
6: And now, without any further ado, Simon Sharma. Yeah.
7: Well, just when you think, really, that the exhaustion of words, the kind of moral squalor of politics, really, couldn't get more wretched, there is all of us and all of you! Exhilaration, determination, fortitude, it's a fantastic thing. It's a pleasure to be here. So, we've just heard a a powerful speech about civil disobedience. You remember that the first person to write eloquently about civil disobedience was Henry David Thoreau. And I want to read just a bit from the end of Landscape of Memory, which I've decided to write 25 years ago now, because I felt that all the other historical subjects I'd engaged with were basically circumscribed by this deep fundamental story of the relationship that humanity has had with nature. So I want to read you something about the conflict that burned inside Thoreau, between these demands of actually getting into the stories of our homes, and his itch for wildness. Returning to the end of the book, in fact. Returning to the cabin in the woods by Walden Pond, a catch of fish tied to its pole, Henry David Thoreau was seized with an overwhelming urge to eat raw woodchuck. Apologies to the vegans tonight. It was not that he was particularly hungry, And he already knew the taste of woodchuck, at least cooked woodchuck, if he'd killed and eaten an animal that had been complacently dining off his bean field. It was simply the force of wildness he suddenly felt possessing his body like an ancient rage. Once or twice, he wrote, I found myself ranging the woods like a half-starved hound with a strange abandonment seeking some kind of venison I might devour. No morsel could have been so savage for me. So when the woodchuck shambled across his path, it was merely the wildness it represented that tempted Thoreau to grab it. I fear we are such gods or demigods, only as fawns or satyrs, the divine ally to beasts, the creatures of appetite. Thoreau feared the resurgence of the predator animal in him, because he was in fact deeply ambivalent about the primitive instinct within humanity. In Walden, he agonised about the animal animal in us, which awakens in proportion as our higher nature slumbers. It is reptile and sensual, and perhaps cannot be wholly expelled like the worm, which even in life and health occupies our bodies. Drinking water from the brooks, and eating berries, he was never pure enough for his own conscience. A virgin, he was never chaste enough for the content of his soul. As much as he fled from the conventional pieties of New England society, he was manifestly part of it in his attack on his own creature instincts. Oh, don't get too wet. Oh, cool. You're, you're like a painting by Kaibot, which is called Les Paragruis, but you're much more beautiful. And uh, you know the, the musical I love called Les Paragruis de Schoenberg. I just wanted to read a little bit more about where that eventually took him. Thoreau says he's finally reached a new world. He meant of course he'd stayed in the same place but in that place he discovered a spot so wild that as he wrote the huckleberries grew hairy and were inedible this discovery made him shudder with pleasure as if he'd suddenly been transported to prince rupert's land in labrador holding the huckleberries in the palm of his hand he suddenly was carried through time and space here grows the hairy huckleberry as it did in Squaw's Sakum's day and a thousand years before and concerns me perhaps more than it did her. I have no doubt that for a moment I experience the same sensations as if I were alone in a bog in Rupert's land. I could be in Rupert's land and suffering at home within the hour. This is what the unappetizing little fruit finally had to tell Thoreau. It is vain to dream of a wildness distant from ourselves. There is none such. It is the bog in our brain and our bowels, the primitive figure of nature in us that inspires our dream. Thank you very much.
6: Now I'm incredibly excited because somebody who I think is just wonderful is going to come and uh, speak to you. Listen, I'm just going to say Ali Smith.
0: Hello. 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 Well, thank you. I'll that. Here's a short, short story about the long, long view. Once there was a small gang of kids, maybe seven or eight of them. Ah, look, here they come right now, roistering around the corner with their arms linked past the lampposts, past the waste grounds left over from bombing in the last war, past the past, past the crazy money tires of the Boris Johnson city, past the present, because they're on their way to the future, and they're pals for life, and they're forging along the pavement, and beneath their feet the tarmac is cracking open, and you can see the earth beneath every road, and on they go, they're singing this song, a simple song, it goes, One planet earth, there's only one planet earth, one planet earth, there's only one planet earth and they don't know it because they're young, but that song's tune is an old one. It's the tune of a song called Guantanamera, about a place in the world that's beautiful, though nowadays cynical people have turned it into the foulest sort of prison, but that old song's words hold the place's history. That old song tells the story of an old truthful man who's dying, and he wants to tell the story of his soul and the place he lives, and how those two things, the soul and the place, are rooted together. He sings about the sea, and how he particularly loves the beautiful little mountain streams, and how what's wounded in life can come to the mountains to heal, how all things grow whether they're flowers or friendship or understanding and how the way to deal with the bad times and with the cruelty of cynical people is to turn to the earth cultivate its beauty help it grow the most beautiful things but back to that gang of kids singing and forging ahead along the pavement because behind them look Now, there is a swell of people, a swell that started as a stream and is now the size of a sea. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, more and more. They're all the people rebelling right now across the world at how this world's being treated. All the people who give a damn. People of all ages, genders, persuasions, shoe sizes, and they're walking alongside more than a million kids, all refusing to go to school till their countries get educated about what's happening to the planet. And look, the plants and flowers that know they're threatened are pulling their roots out of the ground like they've just heard a mythical Orpheus singing the best ever song and they're hurrying along in the march too, dragging dribs and drabs of earth and clean soil all across the city they've got their branches round the shoulders of those singing kids and the shoulders of the people who are giving a dam and with them, all round them, baying and barking and mewling and squeaking and growling and flapping like a massive Noah's Ark Parade are all the creatures of the earth, air and sea, who know they're likely to go extinct pretty soon too, the leopards and rhinos and orangutan and gorillas and turtles and tigers and elephants and porpoises and wild dogs and ferrets and whales and huge tuna fishes with blue fins and chimps and bonobos and penguins and dolphins and pandas and sea lions and seals and sharks and hippos and iguanas and bears and polar bears standing on a sliver of ice and jaguars and plovers and bison and foxes and macaws and tree kangaroos and butterflies and salmon and frogs and right at the back of the sloths. And they're all. (laughs) And, And not just that, the air itself and the sea and the earth, they all join the march. And above that march, too, the invisible, evanescent prescient spirits of all the already extinct species, the gone mammals and insects and fish, the dead plant life, the burnt black trees and creepers waving their ashy leaves, and with them all the spirits of the people who have already perished because of what's being done to where they live. And even some life forms from other planets are zooming down through the galaxies and joining the march. They can't not because it's so obvious, even they know too the only song the cosmos is singing as they march along. There's only one planet Earth, there's only one planet Earth. One planet Earth, there's only one planet Earth And those kids at the front of the Great March on their way to the future stop right outside the seats of power, outside the houses of government and the banks and the offices of the huge conglomerates and industries and media giants and tech giants and oil companies. And they square up to the politicians and to the rubbish world leaders and the CEOs who are all looking pretty embarrassed, pretty shifty, (laughs) the smirkers and the shirkers of real responsibility. And those kids shout. And everyone and everything on the march, those lives and lost lives, everything joins the shout. And it's a huge shout from the heart of the actual world. They shout, cut the emissions cut the crap, tell the truth, and then they settle themselves down, like you all, because they're not going to wait till this is sorted, because this story hasn't got an end, because everyone in it who gives a damn is working against the kind of end that ends everything. So, with all their patient urgency and all yours, all the urgent patience we have, we sing it again and again and again in one harmonised, massive, mass voice. One planet, planet, Earth, Earth, only one planet Earth. Earth, one planet Earth, one planet Earth.
6: Is here tonight, uh, who's very important, uh, uh, I think, in this act of resistance, who is John Berger, who died two th- in 2017. And the quote from John Berger is that we here are all storytellers. Lying on our backs, we look up at the night sky. This is where stories began, under the aegis of that multitude of stars which at night filch certitudes, and sometimes return them as faith. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as a novelist, protégé of Margaret Atwood, winner of the Orange Prize for New Writers in 2016, please welcome Naomi Alderman. Thank you very much.
2: I have been incredibly privileged in my life to travel in some of the last remaining wildernesses of the world with Margaret Atwood and with Graham Gibson, uh, her partner who died last month. Um, I remember when I first met Margaret and Graham, I said to them, oh God, is knowing you gonna turn me into an environmentalist? And they said yes, and so it has been. Um, So in honor of the wonderful Graham Gibson, I wanted to read some of his words. He was an extraordinary man who devoted his life to saving endangered environments. His life and his legacy is an inspiration to all of us. Uh, This is a couple of passages of his about how we got ourselves into this terrible shitstorm we're in. In common with all living things, we humans emerged within the leisurely passage of evolutionary time, but then, bipedalism freed our hands, and our opposable thumbs encouraged sophisticated tool-making. This, coupled with the remarkable complexity of our growing language skills, led to the development of our remarkable brains, which, unfortunately, given the reality of our animal origins, live inside us like alien beings. Astonishingly, the brain has almost persuaded us that we have no debt to nature, that we owe it neither allegiance nor respect, let alone reverence. When did we begin to fence ourselves in? Jared Diamond's article, The Worst Mistake in the History of the Human Race, demolishes the view that the agricultural revolution freed our hunter-gatherer forebears from lives that were nasty, brutish, and short. Diamond tells us that the life expectancy for hunter-gatherers was about 26 years, whereas that of early farmers fell to 19 years. Skeletons of the period reveal a 50% increase in malnutrition, a fourfold increase in anemia, a threefold increase in bone lesions reflecting infectious diseases. That's what happened when we started doing agriculture. Settling in family groups on specific areas of land was not only bad for our health, but it imposed relentless drudgery and want and led to overpopulation and widespread inequality, all of which continued to bedevil the vast majority of us human animals. Moreover, the agricultural revolution fundamentally transformed our relationship with the wild natural world. With our dependence on domesticated animals and plants within our fences, we came to resent and fear all that we had not bred or planted, all that we had not cultivated and civilised. We came to use those words interchangeably, just as we came to believe that the land and its produce were ours and that the real animals, the valuable animals, were in our barnyards or pastures or curled up by our fire. Wild animals who trespassed for food were considered vermin best to be shot on sight. Indeed, we decided it was better to kill them before they discovered our property. Over time, this practice morphed into recreational hunting, hunting and killing just for fun. As we have become dependent on monocultures and on our dull, slavishly exploited and commercially useful animals, as we have come to share many of these qualities We have lost touch with the magic animals of our past and with them the dynamic and redemptive sense of our collective place in the extraordinary event that is life on earth
3: a very special aspect of the writers rebel launch was the support of margaret atwood who sadly wasn't in London for the actual day of the 11th of October, but who generously gave me an interview the following Monday on the 14th. That was the morning of the Booker Prize. And it was so generous of her to spare time on that very special day. And after the interview, I took off the badge, my Extinction Rebellion badge from my coat and gave it to her. And she wore it that evening to the ceremony uh, where she co-won the Booker Prize. Margaret, thank you so much for seeing us from Extinction Rebellion and the Writers' Rebel Project. We were very, very grateful that you supported our event. It was a tremendous success. Wonderful. There were people sitting in the rain, literally (laughs) listening. I'm sure you've been aware of Extinction Rebellion. Do you remember when you first heard of us?
8: Oh, probably through Twitter or social media in some way uh but uh, but i'm i was very glad to see this initiative by young people because i grew up amongst the biologists and they knew back in the 50s that uh something like this was going to happen unless humanity changed its its ways which they did not
3: no And for me, the person whose words have resonated strongest around the crisis is Greta Thunberg.
8: Yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah, she's wonderful, and she's impervious to people slanging her off.
3: (laughs) (laughs) She seems to be. But (laughs) yes, her rage was magnificent. Well, she's sort of
8: Joan of Arc of the. Of the environment, <laughs> I think she needs a big white horse. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Apparently, there's now it's now modish to uh, have plats. Yeah, uh, you know,
8: I'm, I'm out of luck there. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Me too. So you have yourself been working in the green arena? Uh, is there an a, next a long for time. a long long time? You and your husband. You probably know that Naomi Alderman read from your husband Graham oh, that's uh, lovely. at the uh, yeah. Writers' Event and it was very beautiful. It was amazing to have so many beautiful minds and beautiful words and passion in a space addressing the climate crisis. Reasonably recently I also interviewed Joanna Macy and she said it's an exquisite time to be alive because the project is so clear Yeah, and she said there are souls in the Buddha field, because she's mm-hmm. Buddhist waiting to come down now mm-hmm. because it's clear what the work is to be done.
8: Well I hope so so having grown up with early environmentalists at a time when everybody thought they were nut bars yeah. uh, or just you know eccentric um, I'm, I'm very happy to see That this message is finally um, getting out there and penetrating uh, because it's been a long time coming
3: and what sometimes surprises me as a writer um, is that in all that time there aren't that many people who have seized the challenge of the climate and biodiversity crisis in the way that you have, you've obviously you've written a trilogy which centres on that. But why do you think there's the dearth?
8: Well, I think probably because although a lot of scientists read fiction, not a lot of fiction writers read science. <laughs> so uh, I think it's I think it's increasing now. But the the people who were writing about it were were science fiction writers, of course. And there were a number of books that that did that, but because uh, because, it had, because science fiction was not regarded as somehow uh, literary, that those sorts of books, although they are essential to understanding the 20th and indeed the 21st century, they would get passed over or, or thought of as a genre. Oh, uh, there's an old hippie called Dan Bloom who lives in Taiwan, who, <laughs> who all all on his own start, started started uh, uh, promoting climate fiction, and that was some years ago. But but now it's become an accepted thing, and uh, you you can't write a whole novel with that as the protagonist. But it's become the background, uh, or indeed the foreground for a lot of. A lot of books now.
3: Yes and I think a lot of young people are writing them but nevertheless we have known about or the scientists have known that there's a problem for such a long time.
8: If you and go back to 1972 and look at the report of the Club of Rome mm. it sets out if we continue doing this 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 and this and this this will be the result. Yes. And, and so it has been.
3: So having just sort of referenced the scale of the problem that we have what do you think writers can do within that context?
8: Okay. Uh, Fiction writer, literary writer. Now, we're, literary now we're coming to the, the crux of the matter, which is you cannot dictate to artists what they should do. Uh, they'll figure it out, and they're already figuring it out. So my own feeling is just you know give the artists carte blanche, and they will they will do it. You can't tell them what to do or else it's just going to be adjutant all (laughs) over again. So Margaret Atwood isn't going to tell them. No, I can't. (laughs) You can't tell people... You can't tell artists what to art. No. They will do it themselves.
3: There were so many wonderful readings that we can't possibly do justice to all the writers who gave the time and energy on that night. But here's a selection of a few more readings, beginning with Owen Shears. Oh, and a reminder, if you're interested in Extinction Rebellion's Writers Rebels, search out for XR Writers Rebel on various
8: platforms.
9: I'm going to finish with um, a new poem called Term. It's a poem that takes as its starting point um, a scan that we had of our second daughter at uh, 28 weeks. My unborn daughter also presented me with other questions, which are certainly the questions which brought me here um, into the XR movement. So this is called Term. At 28 weeks, we conjured you again, suspended in parts in each dark frame of one long constantine dream: ream, a profiled skull, a snub-nosed mask, a skeleton palm held up against glass, a marionette's leg of fibula and femur. A vision of which our parents never dreamt The bones of the future in the present So why was it then, only weeks later I finally took the time to look What can I say, there's always a reason not to pay attention You're our second and here's a hard first lesson There's something about the adult brain A curse, a gift, I'll let you choose which That can't sustain the marvellous for long But then As if in answer to these thoughts you offered up Halfway down that chain, flesh, not bone Your lips and nothing else Adrift in all that dark, pale and parted As if to ask a question from the womb But also somewhere further on Another time, years from now, when you'll be fully grown I stand in our kitchen, the window black with night Staring at your unborn mouth open as if for breath and can't help but wonder to what degree will the question on your lips be weighted with admiration or with anger in what measure thanks or blame what phrase might it contain to describe these years of squander and if it should god help us be specific ask what it was we did where we stood and what we said when the forests burned and the reefs were bleached. Will we, my daughter, have lived a good enough answer?
6: Ladies and gentlemen, Robert McFarlane.
1: Hello, folks. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for being here. This is from Ursula Le Guin. She is speaking in 2014, but it is as though she is speaking to us and with us now. Here she is. I think hard times are coming while they are here now, when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, can see through our fear-stricken society to other ways of being, and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable, but so did the divine right of kings. Power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. Thank you, Ursula Le Guin, for that reminder. I'm gonna read something that I wrote now, which was a protest poem. It's a poem called Heartwood. I gave it to the protesters in Sheffield where they were resisting council plans to cut down up to 17,000 street trees in that city to deforest a city which sounds like an impossibility but is very easily turned into a reality. So I wrote them a poem, I gave it to the city for free. Here goes Heartwood. Would you hew me to the Heartwood cutter? Would you leave me open-hearted? Put an ear to my bark, Cutter, hear my saps mutter, Mark my heartwoods beat, I'm gonna keep going Over that noise, my leaves flutter. Would you turn me to timber, Cutter, Leave me nothing but a heap of logs, a pile of brash? I am a world, Cutter, I am a maker of life, Drinker of rain, breaker of rocks, Caster of shade, eater of sun. I am timekeeper, breath giver, deep thinker, cutter. I am a city of butterflies, a country of creatures. But my world takes years to grow, cutter, and seconds to crash. Your saw can fell me, your axe can bring me low. Do you hear these words I utter? I ask this of you. Have you heartwood, cutter? Have those who
6: sent you? That is heartwood. Thank you. Our next writer is Anthony Joseph.
10: Um, Thanks for coming to this. Uh, When Monique Roffy, who is a bit of a force of nature, and should probably have some kind of hurricane named after her, uh, sent me an email about this. I felt uh, conflicting impulses. One was that um, uh, I'd been thinking and talking about this, just like everyone else, for, for some time now. And the other was I sort of felt um, embarrassed and kind of thought, well, why are writers special? Why should everyone else listen to us? Um, but this morning I felt slightly better about it, and I kind of realized if there'd been a, 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 a plumber's rebel um, movement in Trafalgar Square, I would have thought, good for you, plumbers. And then I thought, well, you know, we can do what we can do. Um, so this is really short. This is just what I've been thinking about, um, about some of these things. We're not alone in this universe. For a couple of thousand years, humankind has been telling itself a story of how it's better than the rest of nature. Somehow we began to feel we were separate from everything else, animals, insects, hills, trees, the sea. We told ourselves this tale of isolation and carried on pushing away every reminder that we're not only connected, but just one part of the whole. It's hard to argue that we're the most intelligent species. Right now we look like a baboon sitting on a tree branch industriously sawing through it, while maybe also giving some kind of discourse about how special primates are. (laughs) But the one thing we are good at is learning. This is the time to see things as they are. There's a magic in seeing clearly and admitting the truth because after that everything has to alter. The important rebellion now is internal and silent, a quiet big no to the way things have been so far. We can simplify, waste less, pay attention The power isn't outside us, it isn't outside you. The way we vote, what we want, how we spend money, what we eat, what we read and watch and listen to, government and industries, companies, are very, very interested in this stuff, you know that. As we change, they change. It's not too late, it's time. Thank you.
4: Please
10: welcome
6: Natasha Walter.
11: night for all of us but for me maybe particularly extraordinary because on the last time I was here was on Monday and I was lying about there and there were about a dozen policemen around me and then suddenly there were about four policemen taking me to a van that was parked just behind there and then I went to the police station and so on and what I remember from the moment of arrest It isn't the fear or the discomfort, it was the amazing solidarity and the love that the people around me showed. So I want to thank you all. rebellion is amazing because of you because of the rebels who've come together and taken these streets and for me to see this space that was full of police and full of fear now filled with joy and hope and peace and stories is just incredible so i'm going to read from something that i didn't write myself it was written by my father nicholas walter who was active in the peace movement of the 1960s from this pamphlet called Nonviolent resistance because I think that those of us who are engaged in civil disobedience in this rebellion, we should remember our long history and the people who came before us. Let us never forget the power of disobedience. The myths of Prometheus and Adam and Eve, the revolt of the small against the great, are some of the oldest and finest myths of all. And mythological disobedience is not mere nihilism. Prometheus brought fire to the earth, Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge and did not die as their creator told them they would, but their eyes were opened. Disobedience, said Oscar Wilde, is humanity's original virtue. It is through disobedience that progress has always been made, through disobedience and through rebellion. Failure always haunts rebels. But we aren't dead yet. And while there is life, there is hope. And each step we take bears witness to that hope. Gandhi said, A nonviolent revolution is not a program of seizure of power, it is a program of transformation of relationships. A tiny grain of true nonviolence acts in a silent, subtle, unseen way and leavens the whole society. And our task now, maybe, is to sow these grains. And this is what our movement is trying to do. I love the fact these words were written in 1963, and yet they still feel, they feel like they're written for the rebellion today. Whatever doubts we may have about the effects of our resistance, our rulers seem to have none. They drag us about and throw us into puddles and fountains and fine us and caution us and imprison us and fear us. And while failure may haunt me, any person's rebellion strengthens me. We shall go on making our point until it is taken. We are a few. We're many, right? But a happy few. We are in debt, but not in despair. I like to read that like we're in debt to those who came before us. We make mistakes, but people who don't make mistakes don't make anything. We're not yet grown up but we will never stop growing. We are one-eyed but we are living in the country of the blind. We are neurotics who defy our political parents but they are psychotics, building worlds of fantasy which will collapse around themselves and us. We are amateur incendiaries but they are professional pyromaniacs. And we are living in a world where faith is always misplaced and hope is always betrayed. And somehow we are managing to keep faith and hope alive. There is something here, right here, created yesterday and creating tomorrow. But today, the struggle. And the struggle is people against obedience, people against death. And the story isn't over yet. Thank you.
12: I was a little boy, I loved whales with a passion. We persuaded my mum and dad to drive me and my sisters to Windsor Safari Park to see the dolphins. We sat at the front of the aquarium. A big gate opened up at one end. In leapt the dolphins, hydrodynamic, exquisite, beautiful creatures. Someone held up a hoop. The dolphins jumped through the hoop they threw a ball in the air the dolphins spun the ball on their beaks and at the end of this performance the dolphin caught a fish as a reward i started to feel uneasy with what i was witnessing my sisters and i then the dolphins were cleared from the arena and a bigger blacker gate opened up at the other end and in swam, Ramu, our other performer, an orca, a killer whale. The most successful animal on this planet, not human beings, orcas evolved in their state have been around for six million years. They are social, tool using, matriarchal animals present in every ocean. Ramu our other performer, jumped through a hoop, balanced a ball on his nose, and caught a fish in his beak. I had to stop loving whales at that moment. It was a moment of apostasy. I realized what we did. Around that time, two hippie scientists went out from the coast of the island of Bermuda, Shakespeare's island of strange noises, and they lowered a hydrophone into the Atlantic Ocean, and they heard a sound. The first time that sound was recorded, it was the sound of a humpback whale. You all know that sound now, it's almost a cliche, but imagine hearing that for the first time. Imagine realizing another animal other than us had culture, was singing what sounded like a lament a frenody if whales had been able to protest their abuse we would never have been able to do what we did to them in the 20th century three million great whales died at our hands last century whales are still dying at our hands purposefully or actively Fast forward to 2001, I was on holiday in Cape Cod. I was just about to leave, go back home, and I saw a sign advertising whale watching on the pier. And all those memories of that whale in that concrete tank outside Windsor came back to me, and I thought, I'm not gonna give money to people to take me out to see whales being captive, as I thought. Nonetheless, I stowed my cynicism Paid my $12, got on the boat, stood on the prow of the boat. Half an hour later, out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, a 40-tonne, 40 40-foot 40 Humbert whale breached right in front of me. This barnacled angel, Megaptera Novo Anglia, hanging there and a diamond of sea spray. And being a practice writer, I responded poetically. I said, fuck, <laughs> because there are no words to join our existence. the natural world we can only bear witness we can only bear witness since that day i have been on a mission to the whales i have appointed myself as an ambassador of the species i've swum with whales i've spoken with whales and in the year 2006 i swam with whales for the first time in the islands of the azores We went to film for the bbc and We came upon a pod of sperm whales in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and the Azores. And I started swimming towards these whales. The director said, something's gone wrong, the camera's not working, he told me to come back. I wasn't coming back, I'd spent my entire life wanting to do this. And I started swimming through the water, very, very deep ocean. I didn't learn to swim until I was 29. Very scared of the water. There really are giant squid down there. There really are great white sharks down there. I'm swimming towards this pod of sperm whales, 12 sperm whales in front of me, wall-to-wall whale. And I realise I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> As I do that, the largest of the whales, who I later realise is the matriarch of the group, they are all matriarchal, all whales are matriarchal. They've got life sorted out. She left the pod and started coming straight towards me. And I remembered very clearly that sperm whales are the only animals that could and indeed have swallowed human beings. I thought, this is going to be a great way for my finale for my book. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be around to enjoy it. But as she starts coming towards me, I realise she's not stopping. I think... Oh my God, what's gonna happen? She's gonna ram into me or open her mouth at the last moment. At that moment, I lose control of my bodily functions. And I think, oh my God, how rude to come visiting someone and piss on their doorstep. (laughs) Just then, I start hearing it. Actually, I feel it through my body, through my skull, through my sternum. The whale echolocating me creating a three-dimensional sound picture of me in her head it was ironic i'd spent all this time trying to write about whales trying to describe whales not finding the words here is a whale trying to find the words for me and then she came right up to me as close as you are now with this eye the size of a grapefruit utter sentience something completely other something alien something we share this planet with something that possesses the biggest brain on this planet and no one in the year 2019 can tell any of us what she does with her brain she can be a communication with her fellow whales over tens of miles a fin whale can make a vocalization on one side of the atlantic and be heard by another fin whale on the other side of the atlantic These are animals that exist in time and space, entirely outside our parameters. And as she came close to me and looked at me with this eye, which I will never forget, I had one word again, it was sorry. And then she dove like a CGI animation from this Eve Klein blue into the dark velvety black and disappeared. We went back to land for three days. I couldn't sleep because every time I closed my eyes, I just saw whales swimming through my head. There's nothing I can tell you about these animals. No words express them. No words can even give you an idea of them. But my God, a whale swam up the Thames this week. What kind of message is that for us? I don't know. Thank you very much. A
13: really lovely welcome to or Cody. One of my favourite books about nature is Kathleen Jamie's Jamie, Sightlines. This particular excerpt is about the power of silence. So this is Sightlines. Polly and I are both wearing old goose-down jackets, mine patched with gaffer tape and hats and gloves and boots. When the party's assembled, we begin trudging inland over crisp plants quite new to me. I've long loved the word tundra, with its suggestion of far-off northern emptiness. And I guess these must be tundra plants under my feet. The plants are in their autumn colours, russets and thorns and mustard yellow. They spill between the rocks, dwarf willow and dwarf birch, and maybe bearberry. Among the trees, mazy horizon branches grow lichens and a kind of reed which curls at the end like singed cat's whiskers. It's September. When we tread on the plants, they release a dry, herby smell into the crystalline air. Feathers for you, says Polly. Although I'd been looking down at the plants, it wasn't until I saw Polly bend and pick one up that I realised there were feathers scattered all over them. Goose feathers, caught on the dry leaves and twigs, frittering in the terse breeze. Droppings too. These geese must have been gathered here so very recently. Maybe only yesterday, hundreds of them ready for the off. To my mind, geese only travel north, to some place beyond the horizon. But this is that place. From here they go south. Involuntarily, I look up and out to the sea, where the icebergs shine, as if to catch sight of the last flight departing toward Iceland, towards Europe. But the sky is cold, blue, and empty. We cross the Hammocky Goose Plain and begin the climb onto the ridge. There's about a dozen of us from Europe and North America, tourists, still strangers to each other, beginning to get to know each other through polite conversation, getting to know the world a little. If that's what we're doing, such is our privilege. We've been instructed to stay behind the gun. We have a guide, a young Danish biologist who carries flares to scare them and a rifle as a last resort in case of aggravated polar bears. But there are no polar bears. Polar bears, one of the ship's Russian crewmen had shaken his head, huh? They ate the last one years ago. With an outcrop of smooth bare rock to shelter us, we take off our rucksacks, set aside our cameras and the gun, crouch or sit down out of the breeze. It's a stern breeze blowing from the land in Kolskent now, But like everything here, it carries a sense of enormous strength with health. Once everyone is settled, the guide makes a suggestion. Why don't we keep silence, just for a few minutes? Sit still and keep quiet, just listen. We have the sea, deceptively calm and blue and serene with icebergs stretching away eastward under an ashy sky. Below in the bay our ship rides at anchor, looking overcomplicated among the smaller white tufts of ice which drift soundlessly around it. Though white, the ship looks dirty too, the way the sheep suddenly look dirty when it snows. Behind the ship, the far side of the bay rises to a low brown ridge similar to this, and beyond that ridge is arranged a row of white pinnacles, the tips of icebergs grounded in a hidden inlet. Westward rises a range of brown jagged mountains, and beyond the coastal range, there are hints and gleams of something I thought at first was a band of low cloud. But it's ice, maybe the edge of the inland ice cap. The air is extraordinarily clear. That's what we see, what we listen to. There is silence. Slowly, we enter the most extraordinary silence, a radiant silence. It radiates from the mountains and the ice and the sky a mineral silence which presses powerfully on our bodies coming from very far off it's deep and quite frightening and makes my mind seem clamorous as a goose i want to quell my mind but i think it would take years i glance at the others some people are looking out at the distant land and see others have their heads bowed as if in church a minute passes maybe two maybe five Just the breeze and this power in silence. Then a raven flies over. I know Polly likes birds, so glance to see if she's noticed, and she has. Her head is tilted back, and quietly, she's raised her gloved hand to shield her eyes. The bird, utterly black and alone in the sky, is heading inland on the steady wings. It too keeps quiet. They used to navigate by raven, the vikings there being those stars visible at such high latitudes in the summer. The old sagas say that the Viking settlers of Iceland took ravens out of sight of land wallowing at sea. They would release a raven and watch it climb the air until it was high enough to sight land. Where the raven headed they followed in their open boats. Maybe ravens had brought them here too, in their Greenlandic voyages a thousand years ago, a thousand years the blink of an eye be quiet i tell myself listen to the silence i take my eye off the raven for a moment and when i look back it's gone how long we sit there i don't know i know only that i've never heard anything like it a silence that could dismiss a sound as wind would dismiss a feather five minutes ten minutes in a lifetime some people say you can never experience true silence because you come to hear the high whine of your own nerves That is to say, you hear the very nervous system, which allows you to hear it all. Nerves, because we are animals, not ice, not rock, driven by cold and hunger. It's cold, our animals' bodies say. Best get moving, keep warm, keep hunting. So after maybe 10 minutes, by some unspoken ascent, a movement, a cough, our experience of deep silence is over and life begins to whip us on our way. We all begin to slowly stand. Polly catches my eye, gives me the little smile and shrug, which I already know are characteristic of her. We begin to move downhill, back towards the waiting boats. It's a while before anyone speaks. Thank you very much.
6: I'd like you to welcome, please, somebody who was very important for me in my life, uh, Ramesh Gonasekala. Thank you very
14: much, um, I'm going to uh, read you a, a short piece from a book uh, published 25 years ago, um, and it seems to be quite uh, quite right for today. It's uh, it's this book, Reef, the section's called The Strand Line, and this is how it goes. There was a pebble beach at the bottom of the cliff near the cottage. When the tribe retreated, the Shingle gave way to muddy sand and revealed the debris of a whole new world to me Irish moss, moon jelly, sea kelp, razor clams and cockle shells, sand dollars, and nylon rope. In the evenings, when I walked along the path of crushed purple ringed mussel shells, I would hear the seabirds cry, plaintive calls of cormorants and black tipped herring gulls, as sad as our uprooted, overshadowed lives. Then the northern sun would find its prism, and the sky would flare into an incandescent sunset above the oil refinery on the other side of the estuary. Petrochemicals stained the air in mauve and pink. The sea shimmering between the black humps of barnacled rocks, mullioned with gold bladderwrack like beached whales, thickened into a great beast reaching landward, snuffling and gurgling. The sky would redden, the earth redden, the sea reddened. I asked Mr. Salgado, do all the oceans flow into, into each other? Is it the same sea here as back home? Maybe, he shrugged. Earth has spun with real stars under a beautiful blue robe ever since the beginning of time. Now as the coral disappears, there'll be nothing but sea and we'll all return to it. One day, I showed him a newspaper report about a symposium on man and coral. You should have been there, I said, presiding over it all. He looked wistful, it was a kind of obsession before. But other people at last, I said, all over the world seem to share that obsession about the coral reefs. He said, you remember, it's all one ocean. The debris of one mind floats into another. The same little polyp grows the idea in another head. He smiled and touched my head. But these gatherings are full of people who see the world in a different way now. They carry a lot of heavy equipment, suntan oil, scuba tanks. They're only concerned with the how, not the why. I belong to another world. Even Darwin searched his desk for a pen, more than the seabed, you know. He relied on reports, talk, gossip, a tallow line. He looked into himself. In our minds, we have swum the same sea. Do you understand? An imagined world. The one time I did swim out to Mr. Salgado's real reef back home, I was frightened. The shallow water seeds with creatures, flickering eyes, fish of a hundred colors darting and digging, sea snakes, sea slugs, I swam into a sea of sound. My breathing punctuated by clicking and clattering, the crunching of fish feeding on white tips of golden staghorn. My own fingertips seemed to whiten before me as triggerfish, angelfish, tigerfish, and sandstone pufferfish swirled around me. Mr. Sargado shook his head. I should have done something, you know. I used to think that in a month or two, The next year, I would have a chance to turn our whole bay into a sanctuary, a marine park. I used to plan it in my head, you know, how I'd build a safe harbour. We could have shown something. We could have shown something to the world, something really fabulous. Why didn't we? Thank you very much.
5: Thank you, Ramesh person who's going to read It's written specifically about this week so this is brand new red hot raw writing here. Big welcome for Tom Bullock.
15: Thank, thank, thanks so much. Um, I came down here on Sunday for Wales uh, with a neatly edited piece of writing I was going to read this evening and we were blockading the BBC this afternoon and And uh, as I was sitting there, I wrote this instead. So bear with me please, my handwriting is terrible and I've yet to get through reading this without crying. So let's just see how it goes. When I was handcuffed in the police van on Wednesday morning, about half past six, having spent nine freezing hours lying out in the middle of a junction, locked to a man who is now and will always be my friend being subjected to what little torture thankfully is more or less permissible in the UK, ceaseless questions, kicks, racial abuse, we were conspicu- conspicuously from Wales, torches held in front of our eyes for hour after hour after hour, when we were in the van crossing Westminster Bridge, with London alight in the first of the dawn, on the police radio, A discussion struck up, how were they to deal with a hundred protesters who were coming to Parliament to present a hundred trees to a hundred MPs, including Ed Miliband, as for some reason they emphasised ceaselessly, who were coming out in an expression of solidarity. It was my son's 10th birthday and I wasn't with him. In fact, I was arrested at the exact time he was born. The woman in front of me in the van who had just endured the same nine hours locked to a suitcase filled with concrete which, as it happened, I had helped to build. At the talk of the trees and of the MPs, her eyes filled with tears, and let's be honest, mine did too. The madness of this that we should be forced to break the law, to make our government, our representatives listen. But the fact is well that they are listening, or starting to, because they must. Because we are right. We are right like the sun is bright. There are no shades at all. (laughs) So, what are we to do as writers? Climate change, ecological breakdown, the inevitability if we keep this course of societal and economic collapse, these are the truth. And if as writers we are to write truthfully, they must be fundamental to our work. But let's be clear these are symptoms, they are not cause. And it is not for writers in their fiction to serve a movement, not even this. That is to say, It is not for us to go into our work knowing in advance what that work will say. Do that, as the great Alan Garner says, and literature is lost. It is not for us to blame, it is not for us to promote, it is for us to understand why and how we have arrived here, how we have become so out of balance, above all perhaps with ourselves. But first of all, this is an emergency. Climate change is the greatest threat that humanity has ever faced. Extinction rebellion, the school climate strikes, these are by definition, the greatest, the most important movement in history. I say this without the slightest hesitation. So really, I have only one thing to say. If you are to write, you must first survive. If you are scared or equivocal, if you don't feel ready to put your head above the parapet, put these things aside. Get on the streets, join the rebellion. The need to act could not be more urgent. Please, for all of us, do it now. Thank you.
5: Thank you Tom, that's writing, that's what writing does, writing puts you in the mind and the heart and the body of somebody who is not you, writing makes you breathe when they breathed, it's a beautiful important and useful thing but only if you use it powerfully and truthfully based in reality and that's what did, and that's what all of the good writers tonight have done. There was a lot of energy going in a lot of directions, but rather than it being distracting or malign, it it was all the same energy in different forms, and I don't think anybody didn't understand that. It was just an orchestral experience. I don't think anybody's going to forget... A whole load of people in their 20s reciting after Toby Lit wisdom is sold in the desolate market where none come to buy, I mean. (laughs) And this is, you know, people who aren't supposed to be interested in poetry and high art poetry isn't supposed to speak to you. And it it was the reverse of every assumption and every assumption that even literary events and art events now make. So they're all apologising for themselves and they don't allow something to happen that just makes people love the sound of words in their bodies and, and find that somebody has been through grief before them and can sustain them in their own. Give a big waterstands underpass, welcome to Toby Litts!
16: Okay, Mike Mic check. I'm going to do short lines and you're going to repeat them as loud as you can. This is William Blake. He wrote Jerusalem, he wrote some other stuff too, and he would be here. He would be here, and he would be ashamed of people who weren't. So, what is the price of experience? What is the price
10: of experience? Do
16: men buy it for a song?
9: Do men buy it for a song?
16: Or wisdom for a dance in the street?
9: Or wisdom for a dance in the street? No.
16: No. No it is bought with the price of all that a man hath his house, his, house, his, wife, his wife, his children, his children. Wisdom, is market, wisdom is sold in the desolate market where none come to buy, come to buy. and in the withered field <laughs> Where the, farmer for bread in vain. where
12: the farmer plows for bread in vain.
16: It is an easy thing,
12: it is an easy thing
16: to triumph in the summer's sun, to in the summer sun. And, in the vintage. and in the vintage and to sing on the wagon loaded with corn. And to sing on the wagon loaded with corn. It is an easy thing to talk, of to, the to talk of patience to the afflicted,
4: to speak
16: the laws of prudence to the homeless wanderer, to listen to the hungry raven's cry,
4: to listen to the hungry ravens cry
16: in wintry season,
12: season,
16: when the red, blood is filled with wine, the red blood is filled with wine and with the marrow of lambs. It is, it is an easy thing to laugh at wrathful elements to hear the dog howl at the wintry door at the ox in the slaughterhouse moan, the
9: the slaughterhouse moan to, see wind,
16: to see a god on every wind and a blessing in every blast to hear, of love to hear sounds of love in the thunderstorm, in the thunderstorm that, destroys our house. that destroys our enemy's house to rejoice, to rejoice in, the in the blight that covers this field, that covers this field and the sickness, and the sickness that, cuts
4: off his
16: that cuts off his children while our oil and vine sing our and, laugh round our door. and laugh round our door, and our children, and our children bring, fruits and bring fruits and flowers. Then the groan the the and the dollar are quite forgotten, and the slave grinding at the mill,
1: and the, the, mill. And the, captive,
16: in and the captive in chains, and the poor in prison. And the poor in and the soldier in the field field, when the shattered bone bone, hath lain him groaning groaning among the happier dead dead. it is an easy thing thing to rejoice rejoice in the tents of prosperity prosperity. thus could we sing sing, and thus rejoice But it is not so with us.
3: I feel very much like it was part of a rebellion, even though it was a quiet point in it, uh, yeah. focused on the words, yeah. uh, there was rebellion going on all around, and actually that night Trafalgar Square got cleared. It did, and yeah. you
5: went, went to Vauxhall. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it made sense, and I think quite often writers and writing, which you need because you open the newspapers and it's car adverts and it's a narrative about stupid millennials and you can't change anything and don't give money to charity because, they're, you know, you're always being told narratives. So narrative is hugely important. Words are hugely important. Mm. Um, and this was about No, we are proud of what we do. We acknowledge that it's not everything, but it's useful. Yes. And we're building a narrative that has strength and resilience. And when you go away, you know, I said at some point on the night, you know, when you go away, this is inside you now. This has happened. Yeah. You will never forget the way this made you feel.
3: I mean, how how did it... You spoke as an individual writer in the beginning. Uh, Yeah. Would you mind telling us what you did?
5: I've always liked a poem by Adrian Mitchell, called to him at uh, May Concern, telling lies about Vietnam, Um, and I've seen an old film of him reading it at the time of the Vietnam War. I also did uh, one Fast Lane protest, I think it was the 20th anniversary of the blockade, and Adrian came up and had rewritten bits of it that would be appropriate at that point. I think we were bombing the crap out of... Iraq for no particularly good reason other than money. Um, and he changed it a bit. And I, you know, I, I, he's not with us now, but I knew for sure, for sure, for sure, that if he was still alive, he would have done the same thing and he would have been there. So, you know, I, re, I rewrote to him at may Concern as telling lies about climate change. And I did a little kind of dialogue thing about some of the more incredibly stupid things that the press was saying and the uh, page trolls on Twitter were saying. <laughs> Um, just to sort of get it started because um, some some of the writing to this point has only been appropriate mourning for loss but I think that can take the energy out of people who are actually trying to make positive change because yeah we're, we're all mourning loss and we're all looking at loss and change daily which is not good loss and change but I, we need more than that so it was kind of looking at uh, a little bit more than that, and a lot of the writing was more than that, or, or was looking at strengths that we've always had and very old strengths that we've always had.
6: A.L. Kennedy.
5: This is a poem, if you'll allow me. Simon McBurney, my, my hero from, from forever. A.L. Kennedy, my hero. God bless you. I've got a poem that Adrian uh, Mitchell wrote, um, and he used to rewrite it, yeah. He used to rewrite it for special occasions, and were he not dead, he would have rewritten it for this special occasion. Um, I need help from you, um, obviously, so that I don't die horribly uh, when I'm old and frail in a hellish wasteland, but also I need help specifically at this, at the moment. Um, this is called, uh, to whom it may concern, telling lies about climate change. It used to be telling lies about Vietnam, some of you will remember it. So when I put my hand up like this, I would like you to say, Telling lies about climate change. Can we rehearse? One, two, three.
8: Telling lies about
5: climate change. Cool. You got it in one. I don't even have to do that again. So, to whom it may concern. I was run over by the truth one day. Ever since the accident, I've walked this way. So wrap my face in plastic. Tell me lies about climate change. Heard whole ocean screaming with pain, couldn't find myself so I went back to sleep again So fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic, tell me lies about climate change Every time I shut my eyes all I see is flames Took my extinction notebook and crossed off this morning's names So coat my eyes with cruelty, fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic Tell me lies about climate change I smell something burning, I hope it's just my brains I'm counting climate refugees in dust and chains So stuff my nose with drowning, coat my eyes with cruelty Fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic Tell me lies about climate change Where were you when we called out your crime? Shaking hands with oil men and wasting our time So trump my truth with yelling, stuff my nose with drowning, coat my eyes with cruelty, fill my ears with money, wrap my face in plastic, tell me lies about climate change. And can you face your children, look into their eyes, say you think they're stupid and burn their skies? So fill my mouth with hating, trap my facts with yelling stuff my nose with drowning coat my eyes with cruelty fill my ears with money wrap my face in plastic tell me lies about climate change you put your missiles in you put your conscience out you take the human species and you twist it all about you take good sense and mercy and you twist them all about you take the facts and figures and you twist them all about So fill my mouth with hating Dig my grave for profit Trump my truth with yelling Stuff my nose with drowning Coat my eyes with cruelty Fill my ears with money Wrap my face in plastic Tell me lies about climate change Tell me lies, Mr. Trump Tell me lies about climate change Tell me lies, Mr. Bolsonaro Tell me lies about climate change. Tell me lies, Mr. Putin. Tell me lies about climate change. Tell me lies, Prime Minister. Tell me lies about climate change. One more time. Tell me lies about climate change. Thank you very much for being here. remember tonight you cast a spell that's what words do in the bones of your body in the flesh of your body in the joy of your heart in the joy of your mind and your soul and your spirit you have cast a spell go home safe go home knowing you are not alone go home in power go home in strength your home may be a tent across the road i don't know wherever you feel is home go home knowing you are part of something which is now in motion the spell has been cast and this is not the last that you will hear from xr or from the writers rebellion thank you so much for being here and for being part of this